Hello everyone, it's October 30th, 2018. This week we talk about the status of Soyuz and Station, hopefully for the last time in the coming months. Things may be getting back on track and flights can resume, so let's knock on wood and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 182 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So in space news that we're not going to talk about, I guess we can talk about it at the top of the show, which is what I like to do when Mm. it's not actually a news item. I saw the cargo ship or barge, which Blue Origin will be using, is now in, I believe, Pensacola, I think. Oh, cool. Not Cape Canaveral, but it has reached port, and apparently it'll be two years of like upgrades and all kinds of stuff that they're going to be doing. So I got excited because I thought that that meant that this thing was, you know, all ready to go and that they might be launching a new Glen at some point. But apparently that's not the case. So I got excited for nothing. So I I guess if it's two years of changes or I keep wanting to say retrofitting, but I don't know if that's the right word. Do you do that when like you're just changing a a vessel's purpose? Is that a retrofit? Yeah. But uh, two years means that I guess new Glen will not be lifting off for at least another two years. And but I was hoping for something sooner. I I don't know why. I guess it's because like Blue it is so secretive that maybe like you never know like maybe mm-hmm. next month they mm-hmm. could launch because that is kind of what they do you know like it just kind of comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. yeah. i mean like from what i've seen like yeah it's it's a ways off so uh sam in the chat <laughs> points he says uh it's very much not a barge so it's called a row row ferry which i have no idea what it what that means but yeah like it, it looks almost like uh I mean, like it's 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 big, and it's got a pretty big crew section in the front, and it's got a big old deck for cargo, and then it's got smokestacks on the back. But I mean, oh, row row means roll on, roll off. Thank you, Sam. So yeah, so it's it's like a yeah, so it's like a ferry for going across waterways with cars on. Yeah, that definitely, definitely, yeah, for like passengers and cars. Cool. That that is a big ferry because yeah. just like you said it, it has what one i don't know how many like uh, at least a good four or five decks that like yeah. sit above the actual mm-hmm. deck where you would put the cars or whatever i've never been on a ferry like that yeah it's, it's definitely not the ferry that you use to get to Mackinac island <laughs> right yeah <laughs> that's somewhere near chicago right i'm guessing oh no that, by the that's name. Uh, uh northern michigan so like you go as far north on the lower peninsula of Michigan, and then you get on a ferry, and then you go a little bit farther north, and right before you hit Canada's Mackinac Island. Sorry, this was part of my childhood. I, I forgot that not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you don't I know Mackinac Island? No. Well, I didn't know that you lived in that part of the country during your childhood. Okay. Oh, I I didn't. My uh my grandma did. Um, she well, she lived in southern Michigan, but we went up to Mackinac Island once or twice. That sounds like such a yeah. Go visit grandma on Mackinac Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds. But I mean, I kind of got the region of the country right because you know just by the name like Mackinac or Saginaw or whatever yep. you know that kind of thing. And uh, it it actually sounds like we're not a hundred percent sure that this is the sh- they have purchased this ship. It sounds like neither company has confirmed it, but I mean it. Well, that's true. Yeah, so they actually haven't purchased the ship just yet they most likely will but it's all very hush hush and so they're not saying much yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> it's exactly what i would expect I'm not surprised at all but this will most likely be the ship that they will land their first stage on all right so do you want to move on to this week in space flight history yeah let's do it so we have some winners and uh a cool answer so or a very cool clue so i guess you can mm. explain oh, to thank us you. 
what that was about. Yeah, so our winners are uh, Chubby as per uh, Gabriel Norris, Law Loving, and Jolly Green. I think Gabriel and Jolly are two new names. Um, so this week in spaceflight history is the 24th of October, 1957. It was the beginning of the dinosaur program. Uh, so the clue from last week was a quote from the opening narration of <laughs> of a Twilight Zone episode. Mm. So the the trick here was that the Twilight Zone episode came out at the beginning of December 1959, and so it might be easy to confuse the Twilight Zone episode for the actual event, right? This Week in Spaceflight History would never be a Twilight Zone episode. It would be the beginning of the dinosaur program, so a little bit of confusion there. But the quote was uh, something like, uh, the ship with the men who flew or disappeared from the radar screen for 24 hours. So in the uh, in the Twilight Zone episode, they talk about a rocket called the X-20. Um, they called it an experimental interceptor, and they said that it crash-landed in the Mojave Desert. It's pretty clear they're referring to the X-20 dinosaur, even though they totally change, you know, all of its capabilities. So the dinosaur, super amazing. So first off, if you've never heard of it, it's D-Y-N-A hyphen S-O-A-R, not like the prehistoric animal. Dinosaur uh, is like a shortening of dynamic soaring. And so it's kind of the grandfather of the shuttle, although with much more military influence. So it was, it had um, a fuselage that goes down the middle. It's kind of a boxy fuselage for, you know, kind of what we would build today. But it's got kind of this uh, square cross-section uh, fuselage with a delta wing on the back and the delta wing has a flat bottom um so it it looks similar to uh the way shuttle was built although it's much squatter um it also has uh very tall uh vertical planes on the ends of the wings so this guy is yeah relatively small compared to the shuttle uh, it was 10.8 meters or 35 feet long it had a wingspan of 6.3 meters or roughly uh 20 feet 9 inches and what's really cool is yes this was a space plane and because of these you know gigantic wings it had a cross range of 3150 kilometers or roughly 1300 miles which is like a huge huge cross range it was intended to land uh, at Edwards Air Force Base but it could basically choose anywhere along the west mm -hmm. coast um, even up into Alaska to land that cross range of, you know, just over 3000 kilometers includes its fullest uh, down mass, which is 450 uh, kilograms or 990 pounds. So that's like you can launch it with more, but it can bring back. 450 kilograms and still have this huge cross range it also had a pretty weird you know speaking of landing it had kind of a weird feature um wire brush skids so instead of you know a long metal skid it has these brushes that stick down and they um, have the benefit of a huge amount of drag so this thing could land on very very short runways even though it's going to be coming in relatively quickly uh sort of like shuttle did and another nice feature is that on the back, it had a solid rocket abort motor, um, you know, a pusher type abort motor, um, which would not only allow it to perform an in-flight abort, a, a pad abort or an in-flight abort at any stage along its, along its ascent, but it could also use this to do an emergency deorbit uh, if need be. 
Um, you know, if you had run out of every other fuel <laughs> and you kind of have to resort to a solid rocket, it sucks to use a solid rocket to deorbit, but you can do it. And, and so, you know, already we're talking about a very flexible uh, vehicle that can, can do a lot of things. So uh, it was intended to launch aboard a Titan III. And what's really cool is that it actually was designed to remain attached to the upper stage of the Titan. And because of that, after it got into orbit, it retained a delta V of over two kilometers per second, which is like an insane amount of delta V. Like you can go and do whatever you need to do in low Earth orbit and you're going to be good. Not only that, but it actually had a plane change ability that far exceeded those two kilometers per second. It could actually make a, pl uh, a plane change of 20.3 degrees. And the way it would do it is it would lower its orbit so that it dipped down to the atmosphere, use its aerodynamic surfaces to actually push against the atmosphere to affect this plane change change and then raise its orbit once it had finished that's yeah. insane that's uh we we kind we kind of talked about um being able to do uh aerodynamic maneuvers like this at, you know to assist a gravity assist but this is like in low earth orbit using the atmosphere to change your orbit it's a very capable vehicle and it's a shame that nothing i mean i would like to see something like this you know flying today just because you could do so much i mean it's just so versatile it's just such a great idea well and versatility really was baked into its dna so uh, it was intended from the get-go to have multiple generations. They were going to start with Dinosaur 1, which was just going to be for research. Then they were going to move up to Dinosaur 2 and 3, um, and they would have expanding capabilities uh, for reconnaissance. Um, and then they would move on to X-20X. I don't know what that does, but they were also going to do Dinosaur MOWS, M-O-W-S, which stands for Manned Orbital Weapon System, which was an orbital bombardment system, which is a bad idea. I don't ever want weapons in space. But, I mean, the fact that, you know, this could make everybody happy. Uh, it could do orbital supply. It could do satellite repair. And you can do, back then, reconnaissance with people on board was really important um, because we didn't have the computer systems to be able to do really good recon or, you know, orbital reconnaissance. And uh, not only that, but it could do it from a lower altitude than anybody else. Because if need be, you could re-enter over enemy space, do low low altitude reconnaissance, and then go land somewhere else. That's kind of the beauty of this uh you know, insane cross-range capability. So with all that, with all of this, you know, all this benefit and very few downsides, uh, this was actually going to be, you know, a very realistic project. Why didn't it ever happen? Well, it actually came very, very, very close. In fact, they, uh, before the program was canceled, they had even modified a B-52 to do the drop test to begin testing the orbital or the, uh, the atmospheric uh, flight part of the mission. And I'm not sure about this. I know that the B-52 they modified for Dinosaur didn't end up getting thrown out. They actually used it for other heavy lift um, tasks. I believe I I could totally be wrong. I wasn't able to confirm this, but I, I have the sneaking suspicion that this is the same B-52 that was used for X-24A and X-24B later on in the 1970s. So it was canceled uh, in 1963 by Robert McNamara. And, oh gosh, this hurts to say, it was canceled a month before the first vehicle would have been completed. They were almost done building this thing, and McNamara decided to cancel it. So, so he ended up canceling 
uh, a well-funded, under budget, ahead of schedule, flexible, uh, reusable vehicle. <laughs> when does um, that ever happen? <laughs> yeah, it, right. Um, Bell Aerospace was the prime contractor, and they had already spent like half the money we had given them. Just, just crazy. So, of course, you know, if you're going to cancel something this great, you're going to have something good to replace it with to fulfill uh, the requirements. It was replaced by MOL, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory, which was also planned to fly in a Titan III, but MOL didn't have any of the real studies behind it that that Dinosaur did. It had some big issues like putting holes in the middle of heat shields, which we weren't sure we could do yet. And by the way, Manned Orbiting Laboratory never flew either. Um, but at least it has a nice symmetry that it also would have flown on a Titan III. But I mean, imagine taking the same launch vehicle, this Titan III, and you have the choice to either put MOL on it, which can go up, take some photos, and send people home with no science, just a couple of reels of film. Or sending up a dinosaur, which has two kilometers per second on-orbit maneuvering, uh, has the ability to bring back a ton of, you know, relatively large amounts of, of mass. I mean, like, ooh, uh, if you're not a fan of dinosaur, you really should be. Because it's so cool, and it died an early death that it didn't deserve. So why exactly was it canceled? Is there a good reason for that? Most people just say, oh, you know, it's McNamara. Like, he, he did all this stuff. It sounds like it was pretty pricey. Yeah, like like half a billion dollars, right? So it's not it's not low cost, but for the returns, it's really good return. So uh, I think the, the big thing is that McNamara... See, it's, it's weird because he, he was in the... Uh, like he he was the secretary of defense like he was in the military but i feel like he had kind of a bias against the military in space or the military having anything to do with space i could totally be wrong on this because i don't understand the the times very well but i feel like he felt like this was a waste of military budget maybe because it also had uh civilian and science applications i don't know sam in the chat saying that studies are beginning to turn against crew in space for reconnaissance purposes which yeah totally makes sense but then why would you drop this in favor of manned orbiting laboratory and that wasn't the main purpose of dinosaur anyway you know so i i don't know uh mcnamara just you know he was not well loved <laughs> you know <laughs> He made some very controversial decisions. I'm doing a brief search here, and uh, this is from a popsci.com article, and it just says that it didn't quite have its place in the space race. This wasn't going to get them to the yeah. moon, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. It seems that uh, the Air Force wanted to pursue a larger militarized version of the Gemini spacecraft called Gemini B, or, you know, the manned orbiting laboratory, as you said. So yeah. I guess because of that and because, you know, this was not part of the larger NASA program, they just figured to cancel it but it's still strange because it was so far along that you would think that they would see it through and then i know that the budget which was like about half a billion dollars then is something like you know five billion dollars now but even then that's actually not a lot of money compared to most other military programs especially like you know aircraft and this is a spacecraft when you look at how much it costs to develop the latest like fighter jet i don't remember what which one that is but that's i want to say it's i mean it's at least in the hundreds of billions of dollars if not maybe like i might be wrong saying a trillion but it is a lot it's a huge yeah. amount of money and this just seemed like a good bargain but whatever okay yeah well there there you go that's uh that's dinosaur so with that said what is our clue for next week all right next week in 2013 the clue is first attempts 
rarely go well. So this seems at first glance like it has something to do with private space flight, but that might be a mm. misdirection intentionally. So It certainly is recent. <laughs> yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> 2013 first attempts rarely go well. Okay. Well, I don't know what that's about, but if you think you do, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. In the news, for the third week in a row, we I think we have our final story on Soyuz. So this has all been resolved in, I guess, the space of about three weeks. So that's good. Mm-hmm. It looks like Soyuz will be returning to flight by December. So that's, I guess, the best case scenario. So I, I can't remember the bet that you had wagered, Ben. What was it? I wasn't betting. I was just asking. I have been wrong on every bet I've made on the show. <laughs> so hopefully I'll just keep being pessimistic and things will end up going very well in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I am 0 for 2 now with the between this and Hubble going to one gyro mode. <laughs> I am yeah. yeah. I think that we had kind of concluded that they would probably send up an empty Soyuz, you know, worst case, but I didn't expect that the whole thing would be resolved in or well, I shouldn't say that it has been, but they're fairly confident that it will be. Yeah, it's not resolved until we actually get people up there, but yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I technically am still, yeah, <laughs> in the running for an empty ISS. So they think that the issue that they had with the booster, that it is what was suspected, which was that problem with uh, the O2 thruster. We don't know exactly what went wrong with that, except that apparently something had, but that is fixable and it hasn't happened before. At least I don't think it has ever happened before, actually. Maybe it was just like a freak accident. Uh, But they have three more launches of pretty much this exact same vehicle over the next month or two. And if those go well, then they can put people back on board and they will be launching as early as December 3rd. Now, that's interesting because the actual scheduled launch was supposed to be for late December, December 20th. But, you know, this whole thing has been kind of like put into a state of chaos. And the problem is, is that... The next crew was supposed to launch on December 20th. Now, I don't remember how long the whole handover thing takes. I guess it could be just a few days, but usually maybe a couple weeks. I don't normally keep track of that, so I don't know if you guys know, but it seems like it's usually, you know, a couple weeks. At any rate, if they had sent up this next crew on December 20th, then that means that they would be bringing back the current crew sometime in early January. And uh, just as we discussed, the Soyuz that's currently up there at station, that's going to expire right around that time. So that's getting kind of, that's just making it a little bit iffy. So they have to bring them back sooner. So that is why they're actually pushing the launch forward. Well, actually another, another big issue is that they were planned on coming back on the 13th. Forget the expiration date. They were supposed to come back on the 13th. If we can get them home on the 13th, I feel like that's a a good thing. So it makes sense that they would try to push this earlier because otherwise we would have had two Soyuz's docked and then it wouldn't have mattered when they left. Wouldn't it still matter because if you have two Soyuz's docked, you would have six people, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, you, yes, you're right. They, they need to leave before. Correct. Yeah. The logistics of this are kind of confusing. So I was trying to wrap my head around it. I don't know if <laughs> right. I got it all completely. Yeah. A little bit confusing. Hopefully the current crew will be returning on December 20th after, you know, the whole handover process, which again, I don't know how long that takes. The astronaut and cosmonaut that were supposed to go up uh, a few weeks ago, Haig and Ovchinen, they are expected to fly again, but there's no date set. Yeah, if I'm seeing things, it seems like their approach is to just kind of, it's like dominoes. They just kind of keep knocking everybody back if needed to kind of insert them rather than have anybody leapfrog anybody else. Yeah, because I mean, these these people are already current. It's not going to take much effort to keep them current 
for mm-hmm. you know whatever uh, MS12 or whatever. Like they'll they'll have to do some updating, but at least they're they've been training recently. One question I had was, um, it sounded like in that Spaceflight Now uh, article that the two cosmonauts once they uh, once this new trio makes it up there that the two cosmonauts will actually do a spacewalk to inspect the uh soyuz with the hole in it oh really they're still going to be able to do that yeah i think and so that might be why they move things a little forward to give enough time for that that could be oh cool okay because it's going to be both prokopiev and kononenko uh will be the two because if they're doing any kind of like an eva that would definitely help if they could you know have that done before the other crew departs i don't know how common evas are with just a crew of three is that something that's done commonly i don't know or I ever don't, i don't think it's been done to date but i don't know if that means that it can't be done mm-hmm. oh but but this will be after so this will be when they're six so this will be right. during the over right yeah, yeah six right. oh sorry I misunderstood. which is <laughs> definitely when you want to do this <laughs> right <laughs> i think it's always the case that you want to have two astronauts out there right you want two people during the EVA? EVA, yeah. I don't think they've ever done a single person EVA. And so that would leave just one person in the station. Inside, which is like, ooh, that like that makes me a little panicky. Could you imagine like something yeah. bad happening and it's like, oh, guess what? It's you and no one else. Yeah, that would be scary. <laughs> yeah. It's not as bad as being the astronaut who had to remain in orbit around the moon during no, Apollo. No, I think I think that would be I think that'd be cool. I mean, I would love to land on the moon, obviously, but to to be the loneliest person in the world and just like to have you know the ship to yourself, you know, it's it's just the CM, but it's like it's your you know, CM, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Now you can turn up the music or do whatever you're gonna do. Yeah, and like just float, and like that's probably the best sleep that you know, they got on that mission. Yeah, it's way better without those other two. <laughs> yeah, it did look uncomfortable You get to there. poop in private for once. Moving on to short and sweet. We got three of them, and what's our first one? So, great news. Hubble is back up and running. So, the Hubble Space Telescope, if you remember, was placed into safe mode after a failure of one of its three gyros affected its pointing ability. A backup gyro was initially giving erroneous values for the space telescope's rotation rates, leading engineers to consider abandoning the backup gyro and switching to a single gyro mode. However, after cycling power on the backup gyro failed, they performed a number of back-and-forth maneuvers while switching pointing modes, which succeeded in dislodging some blockage in the gyro. After pointing calibrations and checks, the telescope has now successfully taken science data for the first time in three weeks. Awesome. And next up, uh, land space falls short of orbit. The Juche-1, which is an all-solid rocket operated by land space, had a third-stage issue in its attempt to loft the Weila-1 satellite into orbit. This was the first orbital launch attempt by a private Chinese firm since the Chinese government had opened the launch market to the private sector in 2014. The first and second staging, as well as the fairing separation, were nominal, but the third stage issue that had resulted in the failure has not been specified. The Juche 1 is capable of delivering up to 300 kilograms to sun synchronous orbit. Although, just to point out, this was going to not sun synchronous orbit, I believe it was <laughs> somewhere uh, else. And finally, Kepler is in safe mode. Oh. During a downlink on October 19th, Kepler entered a no-fuel-use sleep mode. The spacecraft has been nearing the end of its hydrogen supply recently and has even had imaging campaigns interrupted this year. The team is having to balance the needs of conserving fuel versus returning data on a regular basis. The director of NASA's astrophysics division, Paul Hertz, said, we're not going to be surprised when it runs out of fuel. Well, it's done a hell of a job. Yeah, considering that they gave its study a new name because it was still going. 
Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have one correction from Chris Hoffman, who always provides great corrections. So what would yeah. that be? Yeah, so Chris, uh, last week uh, I talked about uh, Astra's Rocket One, and uh, I said that it hadn't flown and that they had skipped straight to Rocket Two, and Chris uh, corrected me. He says that, uh, yeah, and I, sh- I don't know why I forgot about this, but Rocket One uh, did actually fly. It was just aborted during the flight. Uh, and so we, we don't know much here because Astra is even more secretive than Blue Origin, but FAA classified it as a mishap, which tells us a little bit of information. Um, so basically, a mishap is the lowest level of event recognized by the FAA. And basically, it means, you know, if you intended to power your rocket for 120 seconds, but instead you powered it for 118 or maybe 119 seconds, that's considered a mishap. So when we hear that it's a mishap, we're thinking very, very, very close to successful, like 100% successful, probably, this is my guess, probably meeting the company's success criteria. And uh, obviously it was good enough for them to move on to their second rocket. So thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. But if this was aborted during flight, then they couldn't have gotten that close, right? Uh, right. But the, the key here is that the abort happened at the very end of the flight. It wasn't like they lifted off and aborted right off the pad. So the rocket was pretty much in orbit, but then they did the abort? Um, it would have been suborbital even in the best case scenario. But yeah, it, it pretty much flew the, the trajectory that they were expecting. They just had to cut it short a little bit. I don't know why. I don't think anybody knows why. But I thought that that was just complete speculation, right? I mean, we don't know if that's what they did. Because this bit right here, I thought he was just giving a, just yes. like it's a for instance. Yeah, that's the, right. Exactly. That's a for instance. But because it's a mishap and not something else, that's telling us that it almost succeeded. There's right. a very you know narrow margin that it failed by. And then when we pair that with the fact that Rocket 2 was flown very shortly thereafter, kind of paints a picture. Right. And then next up, we are going to be, I guess, closing the data relay contributor for now because I think we have enough. I, I, I phrased this poorly on the mm-hmm. on the show notes, but we're closing contributor applications. Applications, um, yeah. Yeah, we picked up a number of really good people in addition to the three people that we started out with. And I think we have, I think, seven people writing for us now, and that's fantastic. If you didn't get your application in soon enough, that's okay. We'll We'll reopen applications at some point. But right now we are working on kind of building the system still to handle all these people. So we're going to turn anybody down for now. Hold your applications. Uh, we'll get back to you. Uh, and boy, I got to say, I'm really excited for some of the stuff we got coming up. It's going to yep. be real good. It really surprised me like just how well this worked out, that there are people who are willing to put in just this much effort and time. Yeah. And it's quite amazing. Um, it's just it's just one of those things that my brain probably doesn't appreciate it as much as it should, you know, because... <laughs> I have to say thank you to everyone who has contributed because that's just awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I'm really looking forward to this for these next uh, the next crop of them. All right. So this week um, we have no upcoming spaceflight event, so I guess we're just going to skip that. Yeah. So nothing lifting off. Just relax. Enjoy your week. <laughs> and no conferences of note. I think that there's a couple of like uh, symposiums and things like that going on. There is something happening in Bilbo, Spain, but I just wanted to say that because I didn't know that there was such a thing as a Bilbo, Spain. <laughs> that is definitely worth a shout out. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's it. So with that, uh, I guess we have no upcoming Spaceflight events, and we will deorbit the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk to us directly by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that is all. So we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.